Do you love that, being safe in the love of God? I want to answer a question, ask a question, answer a question that has much bearing on our lives now and in the time to come in the future. I want to consider, does God love everyone? Does he love everybody? Most would think we are wasting our time even considering such a question because most assume if they have any bare passing knowledge of God that God must love everyone. I saw a sign taped to a utility pole in Anderson this week announcing God's love to everyone who passed by. Some of you may go to a school where God's universal love of everyone is taught. Some that you may speak with may even have a verse, such as John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Some may also quote part of 1 John 4.8, God is love. However, there are plenty of verses to show that God does not universally love every single person on earth. And these are very sobering verses that we ought to consider, and especially for myself or for perhaps some of the young people, to have these verses as answers when needed for your own souls or for others. Just a few verses of many that could be brought up to show that God's love is not universally upon everyone. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing, means lying. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Abhor means to hate. The Lord, the Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Psalm 11:5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. A man that loves violence, God's soul hates. Leviticus 20:23. 20, And ye shall not walk in the manners of the nation which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. God didn't just hate the sins that they were committing. This verse says God hated them. Deuteronomy 18.12 For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Those are Old Testament verses. The largest one in the New Testament dealing with the same subject is Romans 9, verses 10 through 13. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born neither having done any good or evil, 
that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. When shown this verse, I was want to spend just a little bit more time on that one. I have heard people try to explain this verse by saying, God still loved Esau, but just loved him less than he loved Jacob. <laughs> to be fair, the word love is used occasionally that way in the Bible. Right. However, there, is, there are good reasons why that cannot be what this verse means. Consider the other phrases used in the same chapter for comparing the same two groups of people. They are called the children of the flesh, being Ishmael and the children from Keturah, versus the children of the promise, Isaac. They're called those on whom God has mercy versus those whom God hardens. In the example there, Pharaoh. They're called vessels of honor versus vessels of dishonor. They're called vessels of mercy versus vessels of wrath. All these comparisons in the same chapter are complete opposites. And so it is reasonable to conclude that hate in this context is indeed the opposite of love as well. When Paul wrote, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, he was quoting from the prophet Malachi. Malachi 1, 2 through 5 says, and this is to Israel, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. God calls the Edomites, the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Does this sound like he just loved them a little less? The children of God, of Israel, were supposed to walk to that border and magnify the Lord from that border between Israel and Edom because of the very visible results coming from God's love and hatred evident on those two nations. There is an entire book of the Old Testament, Obadiah, describing God's judgment and destruction of Edom and listing their sins. Also, if God did not hate Esau, but just loved him a little less than Jacob, then how would that be an example of the purpose of God according to election, as stated in verse 11? So we see conclusively that there are indeed some people that God hates rather than loves. 
If a person is just hearing or learning for the first time that God loves some and hates others, and especially if that person believes the verses that were just considered, he very well may ask, well, then how do I know if God loves me? There are several questions to ask, to answer. How do I know if God loves me? Right. Well, do you love him? 1 John 4.19 says, we love him because he first loved us. God's love has results, just like God's hatred has results. If you love him, he loved you first. Do you love fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? 1 John 4.12 said, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. There's a way for you to know, does God love me? Has he ever chastened you? Hebrews 12.6-8 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. God's chastening is a mark of his love for you. Have you ever felt his spirit in your heart crying, Abba, Father? Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Another way to know, does God love me? Have you ever heard a sermon or read a Bible passage that filled your heart with zeal and desire, fire to serve the Lord better? John 10:27 Jesus said, "My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me." Amen. Have you ever desired to follow the Lord like that and have you done that? You are his sheep. On the other hand, the verse before that says, "But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep as I said unto you." And that was spoken to the Jews. Do you love Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights? Psalm 122.1 says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Amen. Have you ever come to God? Ways to know that God loves us, loves me, loves you. Have you ever come to God with a heart full of love and devotion to him? Come to him with desire to serve and love. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So if you have ever come to God, he was drawing you first. But this brings up a little side question. Does God love those whom he has drawn? Jeremiah 31, 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Are any of these things true of you? 
can you answer yes to these questions? Then the testimony of Scripture is an overwhelming yes. God does love you, and he always has, and he always will. You will be with him in heaven someday, and John 3.16 is your verse and applies to you. You are part of that world that God loves. As we can see from the example of Jacob and Esau, there are many practical benefits, differences, examples that come from the result from the love of God. It affects the preaching of the gospel. It affects how we ought to live our daily lives. One chapter that may be the fullest in giving us directions as to what we ought to do with the love of God, how that ought to result in a changed life for us, is Colossians 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Seek those things which are above. Set your affections on things above, and not on the earth. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. This, that is just a partial listing of things that God wants you to do. As a beneficiary of his love. One of the results of God's love is eternal security. I want to close with this wonderful passage from Jesus Christ. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The Lord has been very good to me today so far because I kind of lost count of the number of verses that we read that had my subject in it somewhere because it's all throughout the Bible. We've sung about it several times. It's the goodness of the Lord that everywhere I look, the subject that he impressed upon me is there because it is an important part of him. I would like today to, well, I would like to glorify our Lord. I would like to exhort you, and I would like to encourage you. And it's not that hard, because this subject can do all three. But first, though, we have to deal with what the reality of our world is. Our world is filled with evil and wickedness everywhere. Our nation and our world have corruption and wickedness from the lowest to the very highest. From those with no authority to those who reign over our nation itself. It is filled with wickedness. We live, as we can see, in the perilous times of the last days. And it spread that wickedness and that corruption to those who claim the name of Christ. Constantly, every single day, we see acts of evil. It's unavoidable in our, in our nation and in our world. Yet, all you hear from men out there in the world is the love of God. God is love. He is love. But that's not all God is. Right. Men forget 
who our God is. And what I want to proclaim to you today is the justice of God. Because he is just. First of all, God shows his justice in just general creation. In the way that he interacts with the world. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. Amen. That's our God. He's not just giving out candy to everyone. He's not just showing love to the entire universe. He is just. Look with me at Psalm 89 and verse 14. You want to know what's around God? The thing that's in his presence continually? What do you find in his throne room? Psalm 89 verse 14. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. He is the embodiment of justice at all times. He never fails. His every action is right. His every action is according to the law because he made the law. He made what is right and wrong. That is justice. But we look at our world and we can find, as Asaph would write in Psalm 73, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them round, I'm sorry, compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore, his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. That's the way the world looks to us every day. And it can be disheartening, can it? To see the fact that everybody gets away with what they're doing. From, again, the lowest person on the street who commits a crime to the government who doesn't pay attention to what's just and unjust. They do as they see fit, thinking they can rewrite what is just and unjust. And that's the way it seems every single day. But we have to remember, as Asaph did when he went into the sanctuary and he understood their end, surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakeneth, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. I would bear in mind, I would like you all to bear in mind every day. Revelation 20, starting at verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works there will be a judgment justice will be done 
because God will carry out his justice. Now, in this Bible, we find repeatedly that God has specific areas of his justice. If you look around this world, who are the ones most abused? The weak, the powerless, those who have no one to help them. Our God is the God and Savior of those people. Amen. How many passages? Can you even count the number of passages where he speaks of, I am the judge of the widow. I am the protector of the oppressed. I am the savior of the fatherless. That's our God. He takes pleasure in letting us know that his justice will especially be done for those who have no justice in this earth. Now, brethren, I know some of you, and I know myself, and I know that it's a test to us to sit back and look at those who are in authority over us and to be told by the word of God that we have to submit and that we have to honor them and give them their due. And it's difficult. It is. It goes against our flesh. But I want to remind you of something else. That while we're charged to submit and honor, there is one higher than they. One who will judge the wicked. No matter what authority they have. Turn to Ecclesiastes 5.8. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent violent perversion perverting of judgment and justice in the province. Doesn't that sound a little bit like our our nation? Marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Amen. We're charged with submitting, but he's charged with ruling and judgment. Turn to Isaiah 10 and... Verse 1. Brethren, we don't have to be distressed when those above us do something wicked, when they pervert justice. We don't have to be distressed. We just have to do what the Lord tells us to do. Because this is what he says to them. Now, he said this to the children of Israel, to the leaders and the children of Israel. But if you think about it, if he's going to do that to his own, his own people in the Old Testament, how much more will he do it for his people in the New Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment, and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will ye do in the day of visitation, and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help, and where will ye leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. That's what awaits those who fight against God in judgment and in authority. That's what awaits those that we have to submit to. So we have nothing to fear, brethren. We should be glad to serve and honor and submit because we know that we have righteousness while they have judgment. Now, how should we respond to the idea that we have a God that has such justice? First of all, we personally need to repent. Justice falls on all. Right. Justice comes to all. It really does. God is just to all. He does not 
regard people. He doesn't regard position. Nothing. So we have a responsibility to repent. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That comes to us, too. We need to repent and follow God. We can't just glory in God's justice if we don't if we don't leave our own sins. Then we have to act justly. How much of this word? I mean, it's here so we can glorify him. But this word is here so we know what to do with our lives, practical lives every single day. We're told, well, quite simply, Micah 6, 8. He hath told thee, showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Do justly. We can. We can be fair. We can be equitable. We can do what's just and right in our everyday lives, and we'll please God by that. But finally, brethren, you know, this seems kind of grim. I'll be honest. It does seem kind of grim that we have a God that's such a great judge and full of justice. But the response from the Bible is not one of being grim. It's not one of being sad, of of being fearful towards that God. The command from the Bible is be glad. Be glad that we have a God who is just. Amen. That judge of everyone that one day every man will see. Who is he? He's our father. Right. He's our father who loves us. So while the rest of the world and us will be judged, that judgment will be one of love. That judgment will be, you're paid for by the blood of my son. And I see my son who was perfectly just. Amen. Enter into the joy that is before you. That's our Father. Right. That's what we have waiting because of the justice of God. I'd leave you with Psalm 67, verses 3 and 4. Because, you know, we should be glad. But it's not just something that we should do. It's a command. Because of the justice of God, we should be happy. Psalm 67, 3. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Selah. Amen. Brethren, we have nothing to fear. Every wrong done in this world, every act of injustice we see, will be righted by the Lord. Justice will be done. And to us, that justice will be done in mercy. Praise the Lord, for he is good. He is kind to every one of his children. And he one day will right all wrongs. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to talk today quickly about an exhortation the Apostle Paul gave to the church of Ephesus. I'm going to look at verse 14 in particular. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Yeah. First, of all, first of all, let's look at the context and who the Apostle Paul was talking to. 
We know from Ephesians 1 and 2 that he was obviously talking to born-again Christians who are already saved. So by him saying awake, we know that he is not saying be born again. This must be some other form of being awake. In the immediate context of chapter 5, Paul is talking about our spiritual warfare and our righteousness, which he refers to as light, and the wickedness that used to be in our life, which he refers to as darkness. He then comes to verse 14, which gives this verse, which I think we all need from time to time, because we all should know, even if we feel we're doing right, we're still partly asleep because we always can do better. What does Paul mean to be awake? If you will, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15:34 says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. That the obvious difference is being awake is being righteous, being asleep is being wicked. Our human nature naturally becomes lazy, forgetful, and wants to do everything the easy way. If, it, if it's working out, you get up the first time you do it, you're excited, you're pumped up, you're ready to go. But you miss one, it's a whole lot easier to miss the second one, then you can miss the third, and before you know it, a month's gone by and you haven't done anything. If it's easy to do that with natural carnal things, which our flesh can get excited about, how much easier is it to do it with spiritual things, which our flesh will fight against and war against every single day? The Lord considers us when we are asleep, which is being wicked, as lukewarm Christians. And we know what Revelation 3 says about lukewarm Christians. He would rather us just forget about it, not even come, just forget about coming to church. He would rather us be hot or cold. Let us be like David, as it says in Psalm 119.60, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Now let's look at an application for this verse. If you will, please turn to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. The Lord will not accept anything less of us than 100% devotion. He will not accept 95%. That is not good enough for him. We cannot think because we come to this church or that we believe in God, that's good enough. James tells us in James 2, verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So by coming to church and saying, I believe in God, you're doing no more than Satan and all of his devils. But what we have before that is verse 17, which tells us, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. We have commandments to obey. I could sit up here all day and go through the commandments we need to do, but I trust that you know a good majority of them. We should be as the Apostle Paul, who in Philippians 3 wrote, he was still pressing toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I dare say that any of us have attained his level yet as far as his dedication and love of the Lord. Now, let's come to the last and exciting part, and that is the last part of verse 14, Ephesians 5, 14. And Christ shall give thee light. What a blessing that is to have it in there. He could have just left that as awake, thou that sleepest. And we should be awake and we should be vigilant to serve him. But he gives a little promise in there. Christ will give thee light. If we will not halt between two opinions, if we will make the little bit of effort on our part to be vigilant, the Lord will be with us. The, the quick turnaround is to look at Revelation 2, 
where Paul writes and says, repent and do the first works. Or he will remove the candlestick from our church and from our hearts, per se. Brethren, I ask you to ask the Lord and in your hearts to forgive us of our laziness. Forgive us for the times we have been asleep. And when the Lord does give you conviction, to turn and run to him. Thank you.